Hi there, welcome to the Neurodivergent Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Griffith, and I am so excited to have you here. On this podcast, we talk about all forms of neurodivergence, from ADHD to learning disorders to giftedness to autism and more. If any of that sounds familiar, welcome to Neurodivergent Magic. Hey there, Bree. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I am so excited to talk to you about this. Um, so for everybody listening, we are going to jump into um, ADHD and professional diagnosis and why we don't all seek professional diagnosis. Um, so before we jump into all of that, Bree, uh, would you mind telling people just a little bit about yourself and your relationship with ADHD? Sure. So um... I about myself. I have to talk about myself. Sorry. <laughs> um, like my blogger self or my. Um, tell us a little bit about how you first realized that you might have ADHD. Okay. So I've always felt somewhat like my brain works differently than other people. Um, and I like reading about different things. Um, the first thing that I really got into was like high sensitivity or like highly sensitive person. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only person who thinks this way. And, um, so I was like, okay, yeah, I'm an HSP. Um, and then as things progressed, like I got some other diagnoses that, um, explain more things, um, like for instance, I got diagnosed with social anxiety. Um, and then later on, <clears throat> I got diagnosed with um, hypermobility spectrum disorder, which is <clears throat> a connective tissue disorder, or it's related to the connective tissue disorders, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, and one of the common things that the people with those conditions have is neurodivergence or um, ADHD or autism are really common in that community. So I was like <clears throat> reading a little bit more about that. And then I was like, oh, like social anxiety and high sensitive are like really common with ADHD. And then I have like a few family members who have ADHD. So I was like, maybe I also have that, but like I present maybe differently because I'm a woman. And so just reading about it, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe that explains things. But um, yeah, I don't really have a formal diagnosis because like all, a lot of these other diagnoses are like quite new and they're still looking into other things. So yeah, so I haven't really pursued the ADHD diagnosis because there's a lot of other things going on that could be explaining my symptoms, or it could be that I have these, I have ADHD in relation to these other things as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's always the question. Like, is it ADHD or is it because of all these other things that are going on? Like, trauma, for instance, can sometimes look like ADHD or, um, dealing with, uh, chronic illnesses can present in ADHD. Like symptoms. obviously it's really hard to focus if you have chronic pain, you know, like, and that doesn't automatically mean you have ADHD, like, but it also, we don't want to ignore the possibility of ADHD because it's so helpful to have the label that feels right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then you can find the actual resources that help you instead of being like, oh, that's just like a side effect. Just, you just have to deal with it. Like a side effect of this other condition that you have. 
versus like, oh, this is something that can be treated separately. Um, so yeah, I definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, and this is like kind of a personal question, so feel free to not answer it, but you have looked into ADHD. Have you looked into autism at all with, with identifying as an HSP and being diagnosed with social anxiety? Those are very often pipelines to an autism diagnosis as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've somewhat looked into it mostly just like reading stuff on the internet. Um, but I haven't, directly pursued a lot of it for okay, I guess for the I same was, reasons I didn't superly yeah. relate to it as much but I know people present in different ways and a lot of the stuff on the internet just is kind of like the the typical stereotypical ways or like the most common ways um is what's listed um but yeah I'm pretty sure like I did like online tests for ADHD maybe for autism I'm not really sure um and I definitely had the symptoms of ADHD based on the online test, but I don't know if it was like the most valid one or whatever. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. The online tests can be so helpful as like a jumping off point. That's what yeah. I usually use them as. Like I will print them out and then I highlight the questions that I super relate to or super don't relate to. Um, and then I do research on those. Like that's what I usually use online tests for because yeah, the online tests are helpful, but like at the end of the day, no matter what you get, no matter what score you get, it doesn't diagnose or undiagnose you. Um, right it's more of a, a jumping off point. That's what I usually use them as. So yeah, sorry if it's awkward to ask about the autism stuff and it's, I'm not saying that you're autistic. I just like so many people who identify as highly sensitive people are actually autistic because the highly sensitive person, the criteria are almost identical to the autism criteria. It's hilarious. It's crazy. And the person, this is super fascinating. Dr. Elaine Aaron, the person who coined the name of the highly sensitive person and everything, she discovered the trait. Um, The people she originally was sort of studying or who inspired her were her nephews who are now diagnosed with autism. Oh, interesting. Right. I I literally just got goosebumps when you said that. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I'm not here to uh, dismiss anyone's identity. You know, if you identify as a highly sensitive person, but not autistic, like I totally get it and that's fine. But I do encourage you to look into autism if you identify as a highly sensitive person, because they are so similar. I know that was the pipeline for me. I identified as an HSP for years and then I got on TikTok and so many autistic creators were like, this is like kind of an ableist term because it allows people to identify with being autistic without the stigma of the label of autism. And I was like, oh shit. And so I started really looking into it and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm definitely autistic. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I had no idea that they were so closely related. Like I thought like the high sensitivity was like a symptom of part of the autism diagnosis or whatever, but I didn't know that they were like so much overlapped, like a huge part of it. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I would definitely look into that. Um, I know one person who's close to me, um, finally got a diagnosis of ADHD and she was looking into autism as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, another thing that stops me from going is because it's like, one, who do you even ask? And two, like, I guess I have my GP, but I don't know, healthcare. It's like, I mean, I, I talked to my GP a lot already for other things and I'm like, oh, I don't want her to think that I'm like, you know, 
just seeking for diagnoses all the time, which obviously I am, because why would I go to the doctor if I don't need a diagnosis of something? Um, but I, I don't know, there's like a slight fear of like going too often or like feeling like I have too many things, but actually I feel like I do have a lot of things because especially with the hypermobility thing, it has a lot of side effects and different symptoms that you wouldn't even think are related. But anyway, so that partly holds me back. And then I see like my, <clears throat> this person that I know, her journey of getting diagnosed was like pretty traumatic, to be honest. And like this, is, and I'm in Canada too. So I think maybe it's different even than people elsewhere, but basically they're just like, uh, well, you can make eye contact and you can carry on a conversation with me. So I don't think that you have autism. That's basically what they told her. And she was like, okay, except I go home and like, you know, this, like this ruined my whole day because like literally all my energy was spent, like trying to be conversational to you in this moment so that I could get the information across that needed to be. And then I go home and I like, can't even talk to my partner because I'm just like done. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. So I think you've brought up two big fears that, uh, hold people back from seeking a professional diagnosis. Uh, number one is the fear of being labeled a hypochondriac or, uh, if, especially if you're a person of color, you get labeled as drug seeking and that's a whole other issue. Um, so fear of, the assumptions doctors will make about you if you bring up too many diagnoses, mm. um, whether that's hypochondriac, drug seeker, whatever, uh, lots of negativity there. Um, and then the second fear is the fear that it's going to be a traumatic experience that, you know, you're going to be dismissed and validated and gaslighted. And it's just not even going to be worth it, not worth the effort. I know yeah. for me personally, I don't have a professional diagnosis, um, either of autism, but like, I know that I'm autistic. And so I personally, I, I have the sort of light confirmation of my therapist. Cause she's like, this is not my specialty. I didn't even take a class on autism when I was in social work school. So like, I can't tell you for sure one way or the other, but it sounds like you're autistic to me. And so I have like her gentle confirmation, but that's it. And a big reason is because I tried talking to my psychiatrist and I was immediately dismissed. I was told that because I wasn't rocking back and forth and rambling about dinosaurs, I couldn't be autistic. And which is just the most insane thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like kind of shocking. Like that's happened to me, like not specifically with that, but with other things they're like, Oh, you're too young to have anxiety. Just go for a walk. And like stuff like that. What? Yeah, I know. And, and they're like, Oh, you're learning about anxiety in your psychology class. Um, yeah. That's really common that people just read about things. They think they have it. Those are two different doctors that told me. So it took me like another decade to actually get diagnosed with anxiety. Oh my God. Yeah. So yeah, I guess there's definitely some like, I guess trauma, but also like whatever, just like distrust or it's like almost like how can they be the professional when they don't even know, like sort of basic things? Like why would they even say stuff like that? Isn't that basic common knowledge that anybody at any age could have anxiety or whatever? Like, why is this a thing that we have to even tell the doctors what's the right thing. I don't get it. No. Yeah. So something that <laughs> I have learned through, uh, seeing 
good psychiatrists on TikTok and stuff like that. And through talking to my own, uh, like care team and everything is that neurodivergence is not covered very much in like school to become a therapist in school, to become a psychiatrist in school, to become a general practitioner, doctor, like it's just not covered. And so if you've done more than a couple hours of research on neurodivergence, there's a very good chance, you know, more than your doctor. Um, which is part of why I really, it's really depressing, honestly. Um, but, but that's part of why I'm such a strong advocate for self-diagnosis, because I think if you do the self-reflection, you do the intense research, like you take the time that's required, you are going to know more (laughs) than these so-called professionals. And it's not that I'm knocking doctors. Like we need doctors, obviously they, they do know their stuff, but there's so much to learn about the human body and, the brain is just not always a huge emphasis, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and unfortunately they don't say, Oh, I'm not sure about that. I'll refer you. Exactly. That's the other thing better. about doctors. And this is a big generalization. So if your doctor isn't like this, like I apologize, but a lot of doctors feel that because they went to school for so long that they can't be questioned and they can't be wrong and they can't have doubt. And that's a lot of pressure on a person, first of all. So I feel kind of bad for them. Uh, but yeah, very few doctors are going to admit like, like my psych, my, uh, therapist, she admitted, like, I do not know enough about autism to diagnose you. And that was so meaningful that she didn't dismiss me or just blindly confirm me. She told me, I don't know. And And it seems more trustworthy. Like in my opinion, it's more trustworthy when the professional's like, you know, I'm not sure about that. I'll look into it and we'll talk about it at your next appointment or I'll refer you out or, you know, maybe you could talk to this other person, you know, like just give you other options instead of just being super confident or like dismissing you. Like, I don't know why, why can't professionals, why, why isn't it okay for them to say, I don't know. Like, I think it, it's more trustworthy in my opinion when they're honest. Yeah. I, I honestly don't know, to be honest with you. Like, I wish that I had some explanation for why they do this, but I, I don't know what it is exactly. I think they might be worried about losing because in, at least in the U S where healthcare is for profit, they're afraid of losing what is essentially a customer. Like people in the healthcare system are customers and (laughs) it's, but aren't there still wait times to see all these people for the most for part? For sure. Yeah. There's still wait times and stuff. A lot of the so time. Like how could they be, I mean, whatever, we all have insecurities about things that logically don't even make sense. So maybe that's why, but like, if they have a wait list, they shouldn't need to be worried about not having enough people. Oh, so I think the way that the mentality works in the U S when it comes to healthcare is like, you have a wait list. Those are all going to be your customers and you don't want to lose a single customer. Like <laughs> you need as much money as humanly possible, but you can't, you don't even have enough time to see them all. So why would it matter if your wait list was a hundred or 101? <laughs> Who knows? I, yeah, I, it's a whole thing here. I don't understand it to be honest with you. It's bad. <laughs> Healthcare here is real bad. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, like, it doesn't matter where you are. The number of knowledgeable clinicians who really know what they're talking about when it comes to neurodivergence is way too few. Yeah, I believe it. So where do people generally get help then? They just bounce around until they find practitioners that actually 
know or like are willing to learn or help or basically um there are a couple of organizations and individuals who are putting together lists of practitioners who have been receptive and then those lists circulate around the internet so but then those doctors tend to have really long wait times because we're all like you actually listen to people thank god you know <laughs> and um so they tend to have longer wait times but at least they'll listen sometimes it's worth it if you don't get dismissed you know um, so I know Neuroclastic is an organization that has um, autism affirming um, uh, clinicians, like has a list for you to look through. I've when I when I was thinking about a professional diagnosis, um, I looked into that, but it was going to cost like I want to say thirty five hundred bucks uh, because insurance doesn't cover it because you're an adult and it's mm. considered a childhood disorder. I think uh, according oh. to insurance, which is very silly. Uh, we don't just grow up and stop being autistic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. That's just so frustrating. I don't know. Yeah. I, the, the health system disturbs me, like not just your guys's, but ours too. Like it's still messed up in Canada, even though if I go to the doctor, I don't have to pay out of pocket, but a lot of it, I still do have to pay out of pocket. Um, mm -hmm. and also like the wait lists are like, I don't know, one, two, three years. So, and also it's like, oh, if you live in that province, you can't see a doctor in this other province. It's like so restricted in that way. So it's like, oh, there's a specialist there, but I don't live there. So I can't see the specialist in the condition that I have, but where I live, there is no specialist, like literally zero. So that's really messed up, I think too. That's super frustrating. Absolutely. And they, and they do it in, and they're trying to say like, oh, we're trying to protect um, the patients from accidentally seeing like unqualified people and I was like no that doesn't protect anybody it just makes sure that people have to be licensed in multiple provinces so you get more income for your regulatory body like yes as long as they're exactly what it is I don't see like why can't they be registered in Canada like as if a doctor in one province is not is like less qualified than one in another province that doesn't make sense like why would they be qualified if they're not qualified you know they're perfectly capable and also like not just doctors, but like all, all other like, you know, physio or dietitians and all this, um, the same thing happens. But anyway, that's absolutely no. When I was looking into professional diagnosis, I was going to have to go eight hours away to get to someone who actually understood autism and knew what they were talking about. So it was going to be, I think two trips, eight hours, one way. Um, and I would end up having to pay for a hotel stay plus paying for the actual assessment all so that I could have a piece of paper with them telling me what I already know. And that seemed very silly to me. So I have pretty much given up on, unless I, you know, win the lottery tomorrow. And then it's like, I just have money to burn. Then it's like, well, sure. Like might as well get the confirmation, but mm -hmm. until I'm at that point, <laughs> you know, like what I just, I guess I don't see the point. I don't know. I, I wish I wish that professional diagnosis was the gold standard it's supposed to be, but it's just not. Yeah. And like, sometimes the having the official diagnosis can help you get better care, but other times it doesn't make a difference. And like half the time you just write down your symptoms and your diagnosis anyway, and they don't even read it half the time. So exactly. I mean, not saying that people should just write it down and say like, oh yeah, I, you know, like don't lie about it. But at the same time, like I've told doctors, you know, I have this. And they never 
questioned it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I, yes, (laughs) yes to all of that. I completely get it. And yeah, sometimes having the official piece of paper can make a really big difference, especially if you're still in school or you're working at an office job where you need accommodations and those accommodations in order to get them, you need to have a professional diagnosis. And I do, I apologize for people listening who are in that situation who are like, well, it's just a piece of paper to you, but to me, it would change my whole life. And I do understand that. And I'm sorry, you're in a position where that piece of paper is so hard to get. Um, I'm really privileged. I'm done with school. I work for myself. So I have a lot of things going for me where having that piece of paper is not going to change my life in any significant way. But I do understand that it it will for some people for sure. Yeah, for sure. And like even maybe it might affect insurance coverage for certain things. I don't know. Depends Mm -hmm. on insurance maybe. But like, yeah, what you said about working for yourself and whatever, like I feel like I didn't consciously do that. Um, like I work for myself as well, but just thinking back to when I worked a typical nine to five job, my life is so much different. Just being able to like control my work environment, um, being able to socialize with people over video versus in person. Like I'm sitting here swinging my chair, fiddling with little things in my in my hands and stuff like that and it makes me so much more comfortable to talk to people and it's so much less draining I don't like if someone's a loud talker I can turn the volume down if someone's you know you know like when you're in person and then people there's those people who stand way too close or just like constant interruptions like oh my gosh it's so much better and um another thing that I think I did inadvertently was like I kind of aim to be like a minimalist and I don't think I'm just I'm not just like oh aesthetically I like when the shelf has like blank space like literally I get so overwhelmed by cleaning and maintaining all the things like it's like oh like I don't even know what's a thing like my boyfriend has a bunch of bikes and then he's like oh like I can't ride the bike because it's broken so then he just has this like other bike that he rides and I'm like oh my gosh like but now you have to fix multiple bikes and then that to me like that's really stressful to be like keeping on top of all the possessions that one has and like if you have a whole bunch of things then you have to put away a whole bunch of things and you have to like replace a whole bunch of things and that kind of thing so just have it like having fewer things I think was an inadvertent coping mechanism for my being constantly overwhelmed and like, whatever. Absolutely. Yes. I think so many neurodivergent folks are so attracted to one end or the other of the spectrum, maximalism or minimalism. Like we tend to be, you know, on opposite ends and not a whole lot in the middle. Like I tend to be a bit of a maximalist. Like I want all the things all the time, everywhere. I want all the colors. I think in that way, I'm kind of sensory seeking. I'm like, all right, give me the Mm. input. Uh (laughs) Yeah. And I think my boyfriend might be like that too. Cause I honestly think that he has ADHD, but he has like the more typical male or whatever presentation of like the hyperactivity and like constantly losing his keys um just you know like oh where did I put that thing and like just needs this like level of stimulation that's quite like so much higher than me whereas for me I'm like 
whoa, the lights are too bright. Like I don't want any music. I, I literally bought like earplugs to drown out the sound of him like existing. And I, there's nothing wrong with him <laughs> existing the way he does. Like he's washing dishes and the sound of the water running is like triggering wow. to my brain. It's loud. And for him, it's like, what? That's a normal sound. So I wear earplugs when he's around sometimes on my worser days. So yeah, it's really interesting to see potentially the different um, presentations of that. And like, even just like the way he describes his childhood, it was like the exact description of what you think of, you know, a little boy with ADHD is. And he even said, um, like, maybe I shouldn't say that, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I there was like, not self-medication, but like his mom, he remembers his mom giving him like Tylenol or whatever. And then he got sleepy and stuff when he wasn't sick and I was like mm, yeah I could sort of see that like if you're a mom with a bunch of kids and one of them super hyper like that's obviously not ideal and she she didn't seek help for him or anything and probably this was before ADHD was even commonly known um because he's 45 so he would have been I guess 40 years ago did was that even a, a diagnosis I don't know right exactly yeah so it's kind of like it's just like a coping thing like of desperation sorry mm -hmm. maybe I shouldn't have said that but maybe that resonates with some people listening like maybe they had similar experiences as well but anyway. yeah absolutely yeah as someone who uh lives with a two-year-old uh I also sometimes put headphones in to drown out the sound of my two-year-old being two and getting into everything. And I'm like, okay, I can watch you. I'm still paying attention, but this way I don't have to hear all of the noises. All yeah. It doesn't have to be a full volume. Right. Exactly. So I completely understand living with somebody and you're like, okay, too much, too much. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, he's, he's not even being loud. He's just being like, just average, existing. but it's just my sensation of it. But yeah, we are wanting to have kids but that's one thing that really somewhat worries me is like will I be able to handle it if I can hardly even handle like regular noise levels and like stimulation levels and regular amount of stuff in our house like having a kid is more and more and more I'm pretty sure pretty much um, yeah yeah so. that's definitely something I considered before we had kids as well we just have the one right now but um is like, how, how am I going to do this? And I think what has helped me is just relying on the things that help more heavily. So like, I have always sort of liked my routines, but like now that I have a kid, I am very attached to my routines. They help get us through the day because I know what to expect and I know what I can handle. And like, that is, that is how we get through, how we get by, because without the routine, it just feels like, how, how am I going to fill the time? What am I going to do all day? <laughs> Except for feel myself slowly go insane. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so just relying on things that used to help you a little and now are going to help you a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a good way to look at it. So where can people follow you if they've been listening and they're like, oh my gosh, I absolutely relate to everything Bri is saying. Uh, where can people follow you? Sure. Yeah. So I don't really talk about neurodivergence or anything online, but I do have my blog. It's called frugal minimalist kitchen. Um, basically I try to help people simplify and save money in the kitchen, mostly through 
minimalism and simplifying your routine so it doesn't have to be really complicated and um, whatnot. Um, yeah, so you can find me there. Uh, I do have some social channels. It's just at frugal.minimalist.kitchen. Uh, but to be honest, I don't really post very much on there, but. Okay. So your blog is the best way. If there's a minimalist neurodivergent person listening, if you're on that end of the spectrum, uh, Brie has some resources for you. So yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So last question that I ask everybody, um, what is one thing if somebody's listening and they forget everything else from this podcast, what is one thing you want them to remember? One thing to remember is probably just like, I think it's okay to not yet know, maybe like if some, if something helps you, maybe it doesn't matter so much if like, say for like productivity things that help someone with ADHD, if you just read an article about that tips for that, and then it helped you, like, does it matter if you have the official diagnosis or not? Like you can still try out those things. And if they work for you, then that's awesome. Yes. I love that. That is amazing advice. Like you don't have to know for sure in order to get some resources and the help that you need. Yeah. And start getting help there. And then, you know, it's not always, it doesn't have to be static. Like you'll, it's not saying like, you'll never find out for sure. Mm-hmm. And it's not saying everything will help you or nothing will help you. Like there's always probably something that you could find to help you. I absolutely love that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. And, uh, I will talk to everybody next Saturday. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you give us a follow over on Spotify, leave a review over on Apple podcasts and tune in next Saturday for another amazing episode.